Hey, this is Dan Wunderlich, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. My guest today is Clay Scroggins. Clay is the lead pastor of Buckhead Church, one of the largest campuses of Andy Stanley's North Point Ministries. Clay joins us today to talk about winning the battle with something I know I struggle with, especially when it comes to sermon writing, and that's distraction. My guest today is Clay Scroggins. Clay is the lead pastor of Buckhead Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Clay, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Dan. Um, glad to be here. First time, first time caller. Uh, <laughs> hopefully we'll have a good conversation. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. And we like to have our guests begin by telling us a little bit about themselves as well as their ministry and its context. Sure. Uh, I was born in Jacksonville, Florida. So, All right. Uh, yep, that's right. Yeah, you being a Floridian, yes, sir. I figured that would connect. I moved to Tuscaloosa, Alabama when I was uh, seven. Grew up in a Christian home, good parents, got two sisters. Just kind of a pretty solid childhood. Uh, moved to Atlanta, Georgia in 1998 to go to uh, Georgia Tech. I was studying industrial and systems engineering. And I should not have been studying <laughs> industrial. Well, I didn't study it enough, actually. Yeah. Um, I graduated with a degree, but I definitely met with the registrar uh, who had to approve some classes that I needed to take out of order. And I said to her, I knew I was going to go into ministry and become a pastor. And I said, ma'am, with all due respect, if you will give me this degree, I promise I will never use it. <laughs> and I have, I have stuck good to my promise. That's great. Um, I, yeah, I got connected at North Point Community Church, which is pastored by Andy Stanley. And I remember being probably 18, 19, 20 years old. And I was so impacted by Andy. I just remember um, thinking, man, I would like to work with that guy if possible. So I went to seminary, got a degree in theology. Uh, more importantly, I met my wife in seminary, Hala. And that was awesome. We now have five kids, 10, 8, 6, 4, 2. And I pastor here at one of our campuses. We have six Atlanta area campuses or churches, and I lead our church called Buckhead Church, which is in a super uh, awesome area of Atlanta. It's kind of a business district slash entertainment area, loads of great restaurants and clubs and uh, concert venues, but also a lot of, a lot of businesses. And, um, it's kind of got it all at our church. Very, uh, we've got some people of, uh, wealth and we also have some people that have a lot of challenges in life that have wealth and don't have wealth. And so, um, and it's very diverse racially. It's just a good spot. It's a really cool church. I'm really enjoying it. And I've only been here about uh, two months. So I'm brand new into this job. You are uh, at least our third guest that I can think of from the Atlanta area. And uh, one of them is Olu Brown from Impact Church. And he talks about how it's crazy to look out in his congregation and there's a homeless person sitting next to someone working yep. on the Marvel movie, you know, and it's yep. like uh, just this incredibly diverse uh, city. And uh, I have been to Buckhead before. It's kind of like you leave downtown and go to that other area that looks like downtown a little off in the distance because there's some more That's buildings right. over there. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, it's got a, it's got its own skyline, but it's about five miles north of Atlanta. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
Well, Clay, do you have any philosophies or approaches to preaching or communication in general? Do you have any maybe mission statements or guiding principles when you set about this work of imparting knowledge or teaching other folks? Well, the mission of our church is to inspire people to follow Jesus. Um, So that definitely is a mission statement of my preaching, I would say. We like the phrase, Jesus makes your life better and makes you better at life. Mm as kind of a value proposition for following him. Um, he doesn't make your life easier, right? Um, but he does make life better. At least that's been my experience. He's definitely made my life better. Um, and I think he does help me. I think he makes me better at life. So we use that phrase a lot. I would say that probably informs my preaching. Um, we are a uh, assume they're in the room kind of church. Mm-hmm. And so when we say that, we mean assume really everyone's in the room. Um, people that don't care about Jesus, wives that brought their husband there for the first time ever, husbands that brought their kids there for the first time ever, uh, people that love Jesus, people that don't really care about Jesus. Um, so that definitely impacts the way I preach for sure. And I'm curious, as as a campus that that shares the the sort of pulpit, the digital pulpit at least, or the video pulpit with Andy a fair amount, how does uh, preaching fit into your pastoral identity, and where on the hierarchy of sort of your priorities and activities does it fall? Yeah, that, that is a really great question. Uh, maybe a couple of answers that just immediately come to mind. Well, for one, I preach about 12, time, 12 to 15 times a year, um, and when I preach, you know— there's been times when I'll preach to all of our churches. Most often I'll preach to maybe one or two of the others. It's kind of a free for all when Andy's not, we all, Andy preaches about 35 times a year. We take him uh, when he's preaching. Right. And then, and, and, and at Buckhead, he's either here live, he's here live about maybe 30, 40% of the time. And then the other time it's on video. Um, So I would say my role, how does preaching fit into my role it's it's actually that's a big challenge for me because it's um, twelve to fifteen times is not enough to build my whole calendar around it, <laughs> right? But it's enough it's enough to greatly disrupt my calendar when it happens. Yeah. So um, I've had to learn how to adjust my role and my rhythm at work when I am. Usually, I'll do a three or four part series three or four times a year. Is about how it plays out. Gotcha. Um, with a one-off every now and then. So it's tough to get into a rotation, um, or excuse me, a, a great rhythm um, or a flow work-wise. Identity-wise, I would say we really see preaching as such a significant opportunity for leadership that it's, um, you know, every organization, the, the leader of any organization would want to be able to talk to all of your employees and customers once a week. Yeah, because of the leadership that it provides or the opportunity for leadership. And so I would say from that standpoint, it's a pretty significant aspect of my job. Um, but yeah, it's it's just an unusual amount. It's not, I feel like it would be different if it were once or twice a year and it would be different if it were 30 or 40 times a year. So it's kind of that in-between space where it's uh, enough to have to focus on it, but not enough to make it 
the full meal. Yeah. Well, and I was going to ask you this toward the end because we're here to talk about, uh, in part, your new book. But uh, a few years back, you published your first book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. And it was born yep. in part out of your experience of, of having Andy Stanley as a boss and being a pastor who is a, a campus pastor and not necessarily uh, in charge of, of everything all yourself. We've also had Kerry Newhoff on as a guest. And I asked him about what it's like to share the pulpit with such an incredible communicator. So while we're on the topic, um, I'd love to hear what your experience as a preacher has been like learning from and working with Andy, as well as any advice you might have for those associate pastors and campus pastors out there who also preach that odd number of times per year. Uh, Any words of encouragement or tips? Sure. I'll I'll tell a quick story. Um, About, it was probably eight years ago, maybe six years ago, uh, I had preached a message that uh, it didn't go well. And I knew it, there was something off. And so my wife, I'm telling her about it. She says, why don't you reach out to Andy? So I did. He ends up saying, hey, come by my office. I'd love to, Let's talk about it. I get there. He's got notes that he had typed out and printed, <laughs> which is always alarm, an alarming start to any conversation about your own sermon. Right. So he's just going like, uh, the guy is a master communicator, but also he values it. I mean, as much as he values anything within our organization, for sure, because he believes so deeply in the power of inspiring people and the opportunity we have to do that really well. So um, as he's I mean, I don't want to say he's railing on me, but that's certainly the way it felt. Right. Um, it reminded me of a coach. Did you did you play sports when you were a kid? I played Little League, um, which I have discovered ended a lot earlier in life than I thought it did when I was growing up. <laughs> <laughs> I valued my identity as a baseball player much bigger than the role it actually played in my life. <laughs> right, that's well said. Everybody's wrote in somewhere is what I've learned, though, athletically, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, well, I just have this memory of – it was probably like JV basketball or something where I made a turnover and the coach, like, calls timeout, pulls everybody together, and he's just, like, yelling at me, being like, Scroggins, why did you do that? What were you thinking? And I just remember at the time thinking, this is such a tough question, but what was I thinking? Right. I wasn't thinking, which is the problem. I don't know what I was thinking. I was just playing, and that's what happened. I'm sorry, you know? That's kind of the way I felt that day sitting there with Andy. I just was like, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I, I, that was the way I saw fit to organize yeah. this message, and I don't know why I did that. I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer. But he kept going on about it, and I remember sitting there thinking, man, this guy has no clue how hard it is to preach after him. And me <laughs> being uh, both naive uh, and also being uh, having low self-control when it comes to the thoughts that I have, yeah. I just said it. I blurted it out. I said, do you know how hard it is to preach after you? And without missing a beat, he said, I want it to be hard to preach after you. Mm. And I was like, mm, roasted, <laughs> burned, you know, but, it, I, you know, I think I think I see it more encouraging now definitely than I did then. But I would say it's a, it is a significant challenge to have to learn how to share the stage with him. And Mm. I would, I mean, the, the most, the best advice I, that I give myself or I try to give myself is I have got to differentiate myself from him and I cannot give him the power to, um, determine my worth Mm. to, measure my own identity or value. Um, you know, the simple idea of did Andy like the sermon or not, 
I, I have to really fight that because um, it's just a real challenge when he's such a big figure, a powerful person, but also um, somebody that I really respect so deeply. So that's probably been my greatest challenge is I've got to, you know, the whole audience of one thing. I mean, I've got to really choose to let my heavenly father be the audience that I determine whether or not something, whether or not I have value or not, I would say. Yeah, it's got to be the right one. And even uh, I'm a lead pastor. I'm the every week preacher. But, uh, you know, there are people in the congregation whose opinions matter. And I find myself sometimes in the middle of a sermon seeing their face and thinking, oh, they don't like this. Should I change what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? You know, so we all have to keep that one in alignment. That's that's really great advice. Well, Clay, we are here in part to talk about your new book, How to Lead in a World of Distraction. And I have to say, when you um, when you're a podcaster and you let book people know that you're willing to have authors on, they send you so many books. It's crazy. Um, and uh, I had kind of been shying away from books. But when I got this copy of your book, uh, How to Lead in a World of Distraction, I tore through it in one sitting. I knew that this book would immediately resonate with our audience. So uh, can you tell us a bit about the book and what maybe inspired you to write it? I I did this interview. I think it was a lady with the Christian post the other day and she was, she kind of stopped me in the middle of it. And she goes, I don't think you understand how relevant this is. (laughs) And I wanted to be like, no, that's actually why I wrote the book because it is very relevant. So I'm not trying to tell you that I know it is, but I, I, I know it, it is just me. I mean, it is me. I am wide awake to the fact that we are more distracted than we've ever been before. And that, you know, there's silly examples, there's humorous examples, there's uh, trite examples, and then there's really serious examples and grave examples of how distracted we are. But uh, I think what happened in my own life is I started realizing that my dist- I had more control over my distractions than I thought. I think a lot of mm. us too often we feel passive or we feel a victim to the distractions in the world. But not only are we not, not only do we have more influence over them, but we have more control over them. And so what I started realizing in my own life is that I use distractions to keep me from paying attention to the things inside of me that I may not want to pay attention to. So the book was really birthed out of my own personal journey and my own, uh, awareness of how dangerous the distractions are and how addicted I am to the distractions because of what they keep me from, uh, primarily growing as an emotional, uh, at least a, a healthier emotional human. Yeah. There, there are sort of two sections to this book, at least the way that I broke it down in in the first part of it, you diagnose the problem of distractions, uh, and then in the second half, you offer practices that help us combat distractions. And and while they're both great, this first that first section was where I had my most ahas and my most most breakthroughs. Um, my I, I host another podcast. It's all about church marketing, so I talk about social media all the time. And one of the dirty little secrets of that is I say in my private life all the time, if I didn't use social media for ministry, I would quit it. Um, but I've realized, uh, thanks in part to your book, that that is a complete and total lie because I could use it just for ministry, but I don't. I use it to self-medicate in so many places. And, and where I have yeah. blamed social media and blamed my smartphone for my distractions, it's actually those are just symptoms of a much uh, deeper cause. Do you want to maybe give us an overview of that without giving the whole first half of the book away? Yeah, sure. I mean, that was 
a really great setup, by the way. But I, I would I use the illustration of white noise. Yeah. Uh, in the yeah. book as a way to explain this. Um, you know, I, I didn't I didn't really know much about white noise until we had kids. And then when you have <laughs> right. little babies right. sleeping, you're like, oh, the worst thing in life would be to wake this child up. And so you, uh, you know, you just learn there's all those little sound machines, little sleep machines that babies use. And then my wife and I, we've we've kind of uh, adopted it for ourselves as well. And the idea of white noise is that it's a sound masking device. You turn it up loud enough and you can't hear those ambient noises that are going to distract you or wake you up or bother you. And I just have learned that all of us have our fingers on the knob of some kind of noise or distraction in our life. And I love the term self-medicate because I think you're right. I think in the reality of life is that everything is a drug. Everything is really uh, anything and everything can be something that we use to distract ourselves, whether Mm. it's shopping, whether it's social media, television, uh, uh, social uh, socialization, food, exercise, work, anything. If we want to use it uh, to medicate, um, we can. And so it really does become like a Tylenol where it basically, uh, covers up the pain or numbs the nerves so that you don't feel the pain. And that's, it doesn't have to be that way. What I'm learning is that there's a better option than just turning up more noise. Um, in fact, it's actually possible to turn it down and deal with whatever it is that's inside of there. And that's, um, that's what I hope, that's what I hope I'm doing more of. And that's what I, that's really what motivated me to try to tell people about this concept. And when I read books like this, I try to pay attention to where I get extra defensive and where you poked a little too close for me was when you mentioned podcasts and the people that have the like talk radio on or NPR on in their car all the time. Like Mm -hmm. I, I have so many podcasts I listen to them all at like 1.5 speed. I've also got like two audiobooks going on at one time. I'm the guy that like if I have to walk across the house, I'll turn on the podcast for like the 30-second walk across the house because at 1.5 <laughs> speed, that's a minute's worth, you know, almost a, you know, yeah. get through it. And uh, and it realized like how many weeks have I needed to write my sermon on Friday, which is my Sabbath day, because I didn't give myself the space to process it the rest of the week because I'm trying to get through all these good in and of themselves podcast, but I just got to say that's where you that's poked well a little said. too close for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are a, uh, you are a, a podcaster, so yeah. that would make sense. Yeah. But, yeah I got to keep up with yeah. it. I, can I give one quick little anecdote? Yeah. Um, I had a chance to sit down with Dave Ramsey a couple of months ago to ask him about this concept. It, it was really a fortuitous, um, situation for me. I don't just kick it with Dave Ramsey. Um, <laughs> but he, I, ha, I have a friend that works there and they asked me to come do their chapel. They do a, a once a week on Wednesday morning, a 30 minute, uh, kind of chapel service yeah. to rally their team. And I asked if I could talk to Dave later that day and do a quick little interview with him about the content. So I got a chance to talk about the content in the morning and then in the afternoon, got a chance to sit down and talk to Dave about it. And I said, Dave, you talk to callers all day long, which is really remarkable that he's done it for 30 years, you know, every day for three hours, he talks to people about their finances. Um, That's the whole Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hour principle. You really become an expert on that. So I said, do you see this in people that you talk to? uh, Do you see this in the lives of callers? And he said, yeah. He said, as you were talking, I was reminded of a caller recently, this lady who uh, she 
had a shoe addiction and I was asking this lady, like, how many, sh- you know, what do you, what do you mean? You have a shoe addiction. She said, well, in my closet, when I open up the closet, shoes actually fall out oh, wow. onto me, you know, which <laughs> you, I'm like, yeah, that's definitely an addiction. Um, and he said, well, have you ever tried to identify when you buy the shoes? And she said, I've never really thought much about that. But now that you say it, um, it is usually when I go and drop my kids off at my ex-husband's house, I usually go and buy a pair of shoes. Well, you know, obviously you don't have to, you don't have to have a degree in counseling to identify that as an opportunity for growth, or at least an example of white noise that this lady was using whatever fix she got, whatever release of dopamine in her brain that that sale provided her or finding that those, that pair of shoes provided her, it was masking whatever emotion she didn't want to deal with that you know, dropping her kids off at her ex-husband's made her feel, which, it, you know, there's a number of negative emotions. It could be, you know, uh, shame, disappointment, anger, sadness, loneliness, uh, any number of negative emotions that clearly that that shoe fetish was covering something up. So that's really uh, a real simple example of what um, what I what I've identified in myself and what I see in so many others. What I wanted to ask you about that to maybe relate it more directly to preaching, you share in the book about um, your struggle with distraction, particularly studying in college. Uh, it it, uh, yeah. it was something you didn't struggle with till you got to college, then you were getting a degree you knew you weren't going to do anything with, um, and studying was suddenly much harder than it was before, and you struggled with feelings of inadequacy um, and just being uncomfortable, and so you would do anything but study. And uh, I will admit that uh, as someone that takes preaching seriously and feels like preaching is one of my gifts. If I get stuck writing a sermon or if I feel like what I've written is maybe shallow um, or, you know, not as good as it could be, I mean, that is when I grab my phone. That is when I suddenly need yep. to take the dog for a walk. Uh, you know, so yep. I was wondering, um, setting aside the fact that you are, you know, preaching alongside one of the greatest preachers alive and active today. Are, are there, are there uh, areas in your own sermon prep or the preaching process where you've identified a, a sort of distraction off ramps or on ramps? Well, I, I think what you just mentioned is a great example that sometimes when we don't uh, feel confident in what it is that we're working on or when we get stuck or when we feel just the hard work of having to prepare, of course, that is a really easy time to distract ourselves. But I, you know, I would also say preaching itself can become a distraction. I mean, sure. I, I'm sure there's, unfortunately, there's probably too many pastor's kids who would say, oh yeah, my dad never, you know, or maybe my mom, but probably my dad never, uh, he just wasn't present at home. And mm. his addiction, his drug was preaching because it was the one place where I get handed a microphone. And as long as <laughs> people don't get up yeah. and leave, um, I'm doing my job and it's just easier to pour myself in it. You know, then in the Christian world, it gets so complicated because it feels like we're doing the Lord's work and right. it feels like we're really, you know, that I'm commissioned by God to do this, which is never, uh, never a helpful, uh, way to think about really anything in life. It, I mean, it, I guess it's helpful to think about it in the sense that we're commissioned by God to love others and treat others well, but to think that the particular task that we're paid to do is something that we're doing because God has asked us to do it is just a very dangerous, uh, right with, ripe with problems situation. So yeah, I would just say there's a number of, uh, ways that this connects 
to um, to the world of preaching um, for sure. That's so true. And we can even use preaching responsibilities to keep us away from probably other things in the organization we need to be doing. Yes. But we can close yeah, the door. That's another say, great yeah. example. Yeah. That's exactly right. There's probably, probably plenty of pastors that there's some, you know, a hard decision that needs to be made or a conflict that needs to be had or organizational change that needs to happen. And it's just easier to close the door and study for our sermon because we'd rather not deal with it. So yeah, yeah. that, that simple concept, um, is, is, I think it's a powerful concept to be aware of. And then it's also something that we've got to fight. We've got to decide that we're, we're going to be resistant toward it. Absolutely. Well, um, I, I think of myself as a preaching co-laborer and encourager, not a critic, but I am aware that there are debates over uh, what is a sermon versus what is a self-help sure. talk. And sure. um, you are certainly someone that is 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 excellent at um, at teaching leadership principles. And I noticed that you actually taught or, or you actually taught a sermon on white noise. And I was wondering um, if you might be able to give us an idea of how you decided to craft that content when it was going to be a sermon in worship versus how you present it at a conference or in a book like this. Yeah. You know, um, I, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. So, you know, preaching one-on-one there, you, you start with a text and then you say, what, what answer or, you know, what, what question prompted this answer? Yeah. And that question turns into the tension of the talk. And so the whole idea that I, you know, I don't know who said it. I don't know if it was John Stott that said, you hold the newspaper in one hand and the word of God in the other, but yeah. you, you know, you're, you're trying to ask what question and culture, uh, prompted the apostle Paul or prompted Jesus to write this text. And so that's really where the message needs to come from. And so a lot of times, obviously we start there, but a lot of times, Maybe too often we start with, ooh, this is an idea that would be an interesting idea to talk about. <laughs> so right. I would say this is definitely the latter. I mean, this is a – I just started noticing it. Um, and I think I used this example in the book, but I'll tell you where I noticed it first, or I don't know, the one I remember noticing it was uh, when Trump won the election. And this is definitely – you know, I recognize that talking about politics is a really quick way to either make some friends or make some enemies. <laughs> sure. So this sure. is definitely not a political statement. Um, however, I was so shocked the day after the election, obviously the whole, you know, our country was shocked. I mean, just simply the predictions of the election, everybody was going like, whoa, this, that, this is not what forecasters thought was going to happen. But what I was shocked by was seeing the headlines the next day of professors canceling classes and canceling tests and delaying, you know, having students turn their project in or their homework in because students were just emotionally distraught and not in the, you know, not, uh, not in the mental place where they could, um, actually do the work. And I don't know what your university experience was like, Dan, but if I was in, when I was in college, if I would have said, Hey, I'm just not feeling up to taking this test. You know, my professors probably would have said, well, that works out well. Cause we're not feeling up to you passing this class. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's probably what yeah. would have happened, yeah. but I started realizing, Oh, wow. We are, you know, maybe a, to ask it in a question is, are we raising a generation that is unable to deal directly with their emotions? Um, that when you feel worry, stress, anxiety, fear, whatever it is about the future, are we raising a generation of young adults that don't, that are just incompetent or, uh, unable to deal directly with those emotions. And so, um, I started seeing that going, oh no, 
maybe that's in me as well, because instead of, you know, uh, being accusatory in your preaching is never really helpful. It's better right. to see it as a, we're all in this kind of problem. Yeah. And I believe it's, it is related to our sin nature. So that's really where the metaphor hit me for the white noise idea. So I started looking through, okay, let's, you know, I, I don't know why. I think I was at the time reading through one of the uh, gospel accounts and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks a lot about, well, in one of the Beatitudes where he says, uh, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, that there is something about the ability to gain purity on the inside, that as we become more pure on the inside, as we become more uh, able to flush out negative emotions and able to process negative emotions and able to uh, get rid of those toxins within our souls, the more able we are to see God, the more able we are to see clearly, to see the world like God would see the world and to see his activity in our world. So I started uh, I started there in the Beatitudes. Then I started looking in uh, when Jesus, just later in the Sermon on the, Mount, on the Mount, when he teaches us to pray, and he says, uh, when you pray, go into the room, close the door, and uh, speak to your Father who is invisible and who is in heaven— and he will see you and he will reward you. So he's giving us a practice to turn down the noise. That There's a reason why he says close the door. Um, most people close the door, grab their phone, and you know, right. 20 minutes later yeah. end up reading a, some wiki article on what a reverse <laughs> mortgage is. Right. You know, that's what most people do. But the, the simple idea of mindfulness, uh, which is so common in psychology these days and counseling, uh, mindfulness is really preparation for prayer. It's the ability to be fully present right where you are so that you can talk to God and listen to God and have a conversation with him. And it's what Jesus is saying. And then I love the simple idea that he says, hey, your father uh, who sees what is done in private will give you, will reward you. And I think there is a reward to that practice. The reward is uh, ultimately, I think it's a relationship with the Father. I think that's the reward, that we're cleaning off the antennas. We're more able to hear directly from him. We're more able to know how he feels about us. We're more able to see him clearly, see life clearly. I think that's the reward is ultimately him and all the benefits that come from that. So um, that's the way that sermon was constructed. I am an extrovert. I'm a collaborator by nature. And so I got a room full of people, some people I worked with. And I usually just say, I, I throw the idea out on the table and say, hey, what does this do for you? What does this make you think of? What is this, uh, you know, where, where do you see this in your own life? And then hopefully we have an hour and a half of rich conversation where I'm taking a lot of notes, trying to figure out how this is going to land with people. So that's how the message happened. Awesome. Well, we have a set of questions we like to ask all of our guests, and I want to respect your time, so maybe we can do it sort of like a lightning round. Um, what's one of your favorite and or most challenging preaching experiences? It's crazy. I'm 39 years old, and I spent the majority of my career, the first, at least the first 10 years, speaking to high school students. I spoke at a camp this summer, a high school camp, and felt paralyzed in the first session. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is incredible how powerful high school students are. Yeah. Um, and so that was my most recent challenge. I mean, I, I feel like I have, like you, when you've done it enough times, you have done it. You've made a lot of gaffes. Yes. Um, I preached with my zipper down in front of a group of college <laughs> students. Um, I have said things I regretted, had to apologize 
Humor is a trap, isn't it? <laughs> it? It is. It really is. Yeah. That microphone is a dangerous thing. Uh, well, I, I would imagine that Andy uh, takes most of the major holidays, but um, are, are you preferential to Christmas Eve or Easter? And uh, if you had the opportunity this next year to tell Andy, I'm going to preach one of those two, which would you pick? I'd choose Easter, but um, he takes Christmas off. I don't know if he does that. I've never really asked him why he does that, but he has us preach Christmas and he usually preaches Easter. But um, so, yeah, just because of that, I feel like I've I'm definitely out of Christmas ideas, and but I <laughs> feel like I have something to say around Easter. Awesome. Who have been some of the most impactful preachers or non-preacher communicators in your life? I love Tim Keller. I feel like he and Andy have a similar um, goal in preaching, but they have very different approaches. So I love listening to him. I love, I'm in Atlanta. Louis Giglio is a, uh, has got a great church in Atlanta. Um, I, I listen to John Ortberg a lot. I feel like I like his style. I, I, I really appreciate practical teachers, um, but also ones that will show emotion and share emotion. I feel like he does a really good job with that. Yeah, I'll stop there. Awesome. Uh, what books or other resources or even other podcasts might you recommend our audience check out? Or what other supplemental uh, things connected to this book might you want our audience to check out? I mean, I definitely listen to a lot of preaching. Um I would say I'm listening to a couple podcasts a week on uh, either not, not necessarily about preaching, but definitely just a couple of different sermons a week. But more than anything, I'm trying to get outside of my own circle and listen to non-preaching stuff. So, I mean, I like a lot of the how I built this stories of how companies were created. I yeah. love a lot of the um, a Hidden Brain, another NPR podcast. That's yeah. it. Um, I love that. I love, I love comedians. I listen to a lot of comedy. I like Tim Ferriss because he's always, uh, Tim Ferriss is, I feel like he treats his followers like a church. I mean, he's like a pastor. He's always trying to give helpful, uh, Hey, this would make your life better kind of content. Uh, I listen to comedians, just their acts, but I also like interviews with comedians. Yeah, absolutely. So I do The Last Laugh by The Daily Beast. I like that one. And uh, finally, if folks want to get in touch and say hi or uh, want to follow your work, what's the best way that they can do that? I'm on social media some. Um, I have a website. People can sign up for a little more regular correspondence. Uh, but Dan, even that question is such a tough question for me because I'm like, why would someone want to keep up with what's going on with me? So, but I recognize that's a very common question to ask on a podcast. I I would just say more than anything, whoever's listening, um, I'm just really, really grateful that you clicked on this podcast and I would listen to Dan Wonderlick's podcast is what I would do. A little more of that. (laughs) Well, thank you, Clay. Uh, We really appreciate your time today and uh, uh, best of uh, luck or blessings or whatever the proper thing we're supposed to say is for success with your new book. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. 
If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.